When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, Episode 85, The Rise of Llewellyn the Great. As we've covered this podcast, I think one of the things that I've heard mentioned to me quite a bit is the idea of talking about an era in Welsh history, which I think a lot of people have a lot of ideas about and a lot of knowledge of. Certainly, if you have studied any sort of Welsh history at all, you know about uh, the two characters we're going to get to over the next few episodes. One of which, of course, is... uh, Llewellyn the Great, the Prince of Wales, and his grandson, Llewellyn the Last. Uh, These two gentlemen kind of make that connection that we will certainly be covering in depth quite a bit. They are important figures in both the rise of Gwyneth as the supreme power in Wales, and also the reason why they collapse and Wales is officially conquered. You can't even if you look at it from a standpoint of a positive Welsh source, you can't do anything but recognize that that is the case, that both of these gentlemen are the reason why it rose and the reason why it fell. And because of that, they're fascinating people to look into. They have fascinating lives that go along with it. We have a lot of writings about them simply because they were in an era where England was suddenly receiving a lot more documentation because of Edward I and his you know, progenitors and his ancestors as the Plantagenets kind of took over ruling England. They obviously start to conflict with their Western neighbors and Northern neighbors, let's be honest, and neighbors in general. Uh, And so this is, as I say, a very interesting and fascinating era to look at. So how about we get to it, shall we? In 1160, Madog Ap Merduth died and Powys split into a north and south version to the various heirs. In northern Powys, the heirs were able to control things for a while. Until 1236, it remained a kingdom with some remaining influence. However, in south Powys, things were stable, but with the death of Owain Kynfelog, after 1197, the kingdom became more of a bit player in Welsh and English politics. It would remain an existing kingdom for most of the 13th century, at least a name on the map, rather than that fundamental player it had played for the previous hundred years. And because of that, it still maintained some relevancy nonetheless, but we have to keep in mind that it stopped being a significant power in the power playing of kings and princes across both England and Wales, um, and of course came to an end at the same time that independence did. In the same year that Owen died, Lord Rees, the Prince of South Wales, passed away. His death sent his dynasty into chaos. 
He'd had 15 sons, seven of which were bastards, eight of which were legitimate, according to the Welsh. In this prestigious family, that meant that there were a lot of people to argue about who owns and should have what. While the oldest son, Griffith Ap Rees, kept things relatively together, but only for four years, as he passed away in 1201, which meant his influence on Welsh history was mild, to say the least. Um, and because of this, his kingdom would fall into chaos and ruin, and realistically would again be another major dynasty that would come to an abrupt end very shortly. As these centers of former Welsh dominance dissipated, in their place, of course, Gwyneth started to rise again. We talked a little bit about this in the past. Um, the largest benefactor of Powys was Owen Gwyneth, who lived nine years past his brother-in-law. Owen died in December of 1169, to the everlasting praise of his chroniclers, who described him as a man of great goodness, with very great nobility, wisdom, and the bulwark of Wales. His progeny did not fare as well, at least for the next 40, 30 years. Unfortunately for them, Gwyneth in this period had a lot of instability. Huel, who was the heir to the throne, wasn't able to outlast his brothers and was eventually out ousted by, by David, his brother, who sent all of his brothers and nephews packing and a lot of whom ended up in Ireland. Uh, one of whom did not. And we'll talk a little bit about him in a few minutes. Um, however, during all of this, there was one brother who ceased, or at least was not really ever mentioned, and that's Yeiworth Ap Owen. Now, apologies if my pronunciation is not great, but here we go. Now, he was someone who was claimed to be a son of Owen, someone who had been considered lesser important, lesser in his abilities. In fact, he was nicknamed the Flat Nose. At least this was mentioned by Gerald, who was, who was close enough to being a, a, a peer of him. And this may be due to a couple of different things. According to later tradition, he may have been disfigured, thus the name Flatnose, which would explain that, or possibly also disabled. This may explain why he plays no part in the conflicts of his brothers. If he had a mental instability or a mental disability, he may not have been able to take part in it. He may not have understood fully what was going on. If it was a, just a disfigurement, then that doesn't explain that, but it could be that he didn't have the followers surrounding him that, say, someone who was considered to be more noble or more delicate in appearance, let's say, uh, would have, so he may have struggled to get a following behind him. Also, there is just not a whole lot about him that gets mentioned, so you also wonder how significant he is. Uh, in this conflict with his brothers. Now, Gerald of Wales was not very impressed with what happened in this period. He says, I shall pass over with silence what was done by Owen's son in our day. When he himself was dying, in their desperate attempts to gain the inheritance, they showed complete disregard for brotherly ties. Gerald goes so far as to claim that only one of the sons was even legitimate. But this may be due to Owen's excommunication over marrying his first cousin, Kristen. However, the sons that he called legitimate was 
Yoiworth. Yoiworth was married to Merad, or also known in some sources as Margaret, the daughter of Madog, and seemingly ruled a small portion of South Gwyneth while his brothers fought over the main crown. In 1173, in a year that the brute describes as the best in the spring and a misery the rest of the year, Marad bore a son to Yoiworth, and they named him Llewellyn. A year later, the baby and mother were widowed and fatherless as Yoiworth died in 1174. Of course, other than these bits and pieces which we have, that's it. That's that's all we really know about one of the fathers of the greatest princes in Wales. Someone who had such a historical influence on the rest of Welsh history. And his parental figure is just not really important enough to be named beyond that. Which, if he was disabled in some way, may explain a lot. He would possibly be considered an embarrassment compared to the backdrop of his father and his son. And with that in mind, the chroniclers may have wanted to avoid talking about him other than just in the aspect of him being a parent. His son, on the other hand, appears to have grown up with a chip on his shoulder. According to Gerald, when he went north to visit Gwyneth, he found Llewellyn at 12 years old already looking to bring down his uncles, David and Rodri. As Gerald put it, the uncles had lands and connections, and Llewellyn was completely destitute of lands or money, but he was legitimate and could therefore trust in the vengeance of God. So why was Llewellyn so driven? Likely his father lost his possessions either at his death or shortly before when the overthrow happened of all of the brothers and nephews. He was most likely kept out of Gwyneth for a while. Much like his great-grandfather, he was left wanting more than what life had allotted him at that point. His mother, it was suggested, may have remarried to a Corbett, who was a marcher from the Shropshire area, which, as a princess to a Powys monarch, may, might make some sense, as obviously Shropshire and Powys are side by side, and it would mean that Llewellyn was brought up outside of Wales, or at the very least outside of Gwyneth, and this in itself may have stroked the fire of his desire for vengeance. Looking at the math, though, I think Gerald may have had his timing off. Most likely, if this was during the Baldwin mission of 1188, and he met Llewellyn then, he was likely closer to 15 than 12, which would make a lot of sense, as he would have been seen of age, which at least now would be a threat to his uncles. At 12 years old, they may have considered that an adult, but the reality of it is, is I mean, a preteen leading an army successfully, I'm not sure that would have worked as well. However, going back to his upbringing, Llewellyn was well-versed in French and the courtly language of England at the time. He worked well with the marcher lords as well, which makes you wonder if his connections in early life served him in later life, as he had to deal with all these English lords who would be clamoring to take him down a peg under normal circumstances. Whether he was 12 or 15, Llewellyn did make his way to Wales. If we were to go by the timeline, that puts him in the area during about 1189. The Brute, or the Chronicle of the Princes, tells us that he was working with his uncle to take down Daffod, and certainly worked with his cousins, if nothing else. The three brothers, or at least their sons, had ruled Gwyneth together for some time. So what had set them at each other at this point, this of course being the questions, why were the uncles fighting amongst themselves 
and why did they see a need to take down Duffet? Duffet had ruled Gwyneth for 20 years by this time. His brothers and nephews finally had carried out their attack against him. Kynan and Rodri were a party to the defeat of their brother, which is an interesting in light of the comments by Gerald about the brothers, and specifically about this idea that Llewellyn somehow didn't need them. Um, apparently, he kind of did. And Llewellyn and his cousins, Merduth and Griffith, sons of Kynan, and they were effectively the three leaders in charge of overcoming David. Now, the one question you have is, is this because the younger generation was sick of the older generation? Was Llewellyn kind of the ringleader who got these two involved, or was it the other way around? Were they already trying to revolt and went to Llewellyn seeking his help because of his connections to the East, both with the English court and with the Powys court? Could there be, you know, multiple reasons why he's brought on board, and did he just basically assume charge once he got there? Or, like I said, was he always the one who was in charge and these guys just came to him needing his help? Uh, or did he come to them needing their help? We don't fully know. Unfortunately, the stories and, and the explanations we have don't go into it. But certainly, it does make one wonder if that is exactly what happened. And as it turns out, at uh, a battle at Aberconwy in 1194, they defeated Daphid and captured him. And he was then sent away from Gwyneth, eventually to live out the rest of his days in England, while Flewellyn traded places with his uncle as the ruler of the southern part of Gwyneth and the most powerful ruler in the triumvirate, if you want to call it that, between the uncles and their nephew. In 1195, Rodri passed away, leaving his lands into the hands of his sons, but they would not last in their hands that long. In 1197, as mentioned earlier, Powys and Doithbarth suffered losses that left them unable to stop Llewellyn, who had conquered much of eastern Gwyneth at the time. He jointly ruled with his cousins, those two that had worked with him earlier through the revolt, and were very much a part and a party to this. But by 1201, Griffith had also died, and thus, slowly but surely, Llewellyn was taking control. And it seemed this marked an important point for Llewellyn, because at this point, with Griffith dead and one of the two brothers and sons of Kinnan dead, it made it easier for Llewellyn to start to move in and take territory. He started to, I mean, for lack of a better word, steal territory from his cousins and started to move towards taking all of Gwyneth back for his control. And at the same time, he was making maneuvers by making alliances with kings and powers and trying to build connections within the kinship. Because, of course, there is some speculation that Llewellyn may not have even known a lot of Welsh before he got back to Wales, that because he'd been speaking in courts in England and he had learned Latin and French, which were major languages, obviously, in England at this time, uh, he may not have been as well-versed at it. That's purely academic speculation without a lot of backing at this point. But certainly it is one that you have to question with the way his life went, is if he had a lot of opportunities to continue to learn and develop his links to his cousins and ancestors and all of these people that were spread across Wales that he had some sort of relationship with. Keep in mind that these people are still descendants of Mervyn and of Rodri the Great, so there's still all of those ancestral links 
in with each other. This is a time when everybody was known by a patronymics, and so, you know, the farther back you could go, the better your linkage is with the past, the better it would be for you. So if you can say, you know, I'm a descendant of Rodri the Great, that certainly helps. And of course, that family linkage, whether it's real or imagined, as the case may be it sometimes, certainly helps when you're dealing with relatives, in quotes. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, the one person we haven't really mentioned a lot of in this is the King of England. At this point in 1201, the King is John, uh, of course, of Robin Hood fame, for those of you that know those stories. And of course, uh, more importantly in history, he's also known for the Magna Carta because of his mismanagement of his lords. And Llewellyn uh, has a lot to relate to John because, of course, there's a lot of things that come about that he has to deal with the person who would eventually become his father-in-law. And luckily we have a copy of some of the documents that they drew up together in 1201. Of course, they entered into a treaty and this treaty, which the text of which still survives, uh, says that Llewellyn and his uh, leading men or his nobles swore loyalty, fealty, and promised homage to the king, while John then conceded that either Welsh or English law might be employed in the land subject to Llewellyn, thus giving him royal recognition and, of course, uh, surviving practices of Welsh legal framework being recognized by the English king would obviously be important. I mean, that's it does make sense. Although, in all fairness, there isn't much the English could have done if he legitimately practiced English or Welsh law. I don't think they could have enforced a whole lot. But the, the fact that this is uh, put down in some sort of law or some sort of code or treaty shows that it was important to both sides and did mean something. And in fact, historian R. R. Davies argues that this link between the laws of Wales and the laws of England are one of the conflicts and one of the key marker points of the 13th century. It was one of the big debates between the two sides as to what everybody had to be respected towards and respectful for. And I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, not dissimilarly important was four years later, uh, a relationship 
between Llewellyn and John had grown so much that they actually formed a familial relationship because uh, John's illegitimate daughter, Joanna, married Llewellyn. And this, of course, is a major significance because this would be one of the first times that the Anglo nobility married into a Welsh nobility as opposed to the other way around. Of course, we have the example of Nest, who was the the um, lover of the King of England, Henry I, and then eventually became a part of the Marcher Lords as she married one of them. But the reality of it is we didn't have a lot of instances where that was the other way around, not since the Normans had come anyway. And this is kind of one of those first things which creates yet another link between the two sides. Of course, this doesn't stop either side from fighting. It never did with the Welsh. Why would it now? So certainly that's something to keep in mind. But nonetheless, it's an important point in the history of the Welsh-English relationship. And most importantly, it also acknowledges the fact that Llewellyn even at this stage, and we're talking about someone who's in his 20s at this point, had a dominant over his kingdom, but also had dominance enough to be recognized as important enough that the King of England would marry his daughter to him. And so he had to be somebody he had to worry about. He had to have treaties with. He had to be someone of significance enough that you had to work with and marry into to keep him on your side. Because if you didn't, who knows what would happen. Now we know at this point, shortly thereafter, John will get into all sorts of trouble with his own nobles. And within a decade, will have signed the Magna Carta. And of course, Llewellyn and his heirs will have something to do with that as well. But... Nonetheless, this is an important point for the King of England. It's an important point for the Prince of Wales. And it will, again, show the significance of the role that Llewellyn was playing in the Welsh politics and really in the English politics. So it's something to keep in mind. It's a significant moment. And because of that, it's the moment that we're going to close out our discussion of this point in his life. As we progress along, we'll talk about a lot of other things in relation to that, to Llewellyn and his life, and we'll get in more details of his growing kingdom and how he ruled it. But until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, for those of you who are Patreon supporters, please check out the Patreon page. We just put up a new video today, yesterday. And of course, there is more to come on this front and uh, if you want to become a supporter, certainly you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Welsh history. And uh, we do put up, I put up some commentary videos periodically, and I'm trying to do those on a monthly basis going forward and uh, talk about kind of what you want to see coming forward out of this podcast. So please consider checking it out. And I appreciate all those who have. And I appreciate your listening, and thank you, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always reach me at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at welshhistorypod, or on Facebook at welshhistorypodcast, at facebook.com forward slash welshhistorypodcast. Until next time, everyone, take care, have a great day, enjoy your weeks, and we'll see you later. Bye. been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. 
In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.